Uh, some new friends that just came as a result of the cards. And uh, good to see you guys coming back from last week and the weeks prior. And good to see my friend Matt right here. He's awesome. And uh, let me just share this with you as you, uh, as you guys are looking up here. Our songs that we sing are like modern-day hymns. If you guys are, like, cool with contemporary music, that's what we're doing. And when we're singing these songs, they're to God. If you guys don't want to sing, you guys can sit down, keep sipping on the drink, get a free rice krispie tree. Mm, can't go wrong there, okay? But, like, this is our rice krispie tree for Jesus. It makes us feel good. And we're giving God the, the praise he deserves. And if you didn't understand any of that, just think of a Lady Gaga concert, but for Jesus, okay? But, but this is acoustic, and he's not as good looking as Lady Gaga, but he's single, and he is hot. Okay? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for bringing us all here tonight, God. It's just awesome to be in your presence, Lord, where the sun is always shining. The S-O-N, Son of God, is here, shining his light on us, God. And we just ask you to bless the singing, uh, the time of sharing and announcements, and the talk tonight on who you are, and even the prayer at the end, and the fellowship, all of this night belongs to you. Help us to draw closer to you and to each other. In Jesus' name we pray. And can everybody say amen? Amen. 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 Thank you, Wade. Thank you for the introduction, Joey. Uh, how many of you guys are we here for Jesus Christ? And, and when, when I worship, I just, I'm free. I like to sing songs. I like to clap. So I'm going to ask you guys if you can help me uh, just to clap. So just on. Um, on beat, amen? So we're going to try this. One, two, three. Let me sing this. Goodbye. Who am I that you are mine can love me? That's you, that's you, hear me. When I call, is it true? Is it true that you are thinking of me? How you love me, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. Back to the top, who am I? Who am I that you are my friend of me? Come on, clap those hands. That's you, you. When I call, is it true? Is it true that you are thinking of me? How you love me? It's amazing. It's time a friend of God. It's time a friend of God. It's time a friend of God. He calls me friend. Come on, sing it again. It's time a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. Everybody clap like this. Come on, help me out. Amen. Let's sing that I'm a friend. I'm a friend of God. Of course. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. Let's see who I am. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. Oh, yeah. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. One more time. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. He calls me friend. Come on, just clap your hands right now. Just offer them to the Lord. 
God, uh, God said that he calls us friends. He no longer calls us servants, but then he identifies us as friends. And, and just what a privilege it is that we have a relationship, that we have that fellowship with God. Amen? This next song is called Open the Eyes of My Heart. Let's just sing that. Amen?
I'll say mine out loud to encourage you. God, I'm giving you my wife and two children and a third one on the way, God. My family is yours today, God. I'm letting go of it, God. I can't do it without you. God, the church, the job that you called me to do, I'm letting go, God. I don't want to try to control it and do it my way. I want your way. And Lord, to fulfill my purpose, to live every day with hope, put it in all of your hands. Now that we've expressed those three things to God, would you now just tell him three different ways, just three different ways you love him. And if you don't love him, just your eyes closed to think about ice cream and how much you love that or something. But, but for those of us who love God, come on, just think of three words that describe him and just say, God, you are, you are good. You are merciful. You are ever-present. You are a forever helper to those who need your help. You are a guidance. You are a strength. We thank you for that. You're the gift giver. You are the hope that we have on the inside. We love you today, God. That's why we came here. We don't want to move on without telling you thank you. If you love Jesus, can everybody say amen? Amen. amen. Can you put your hands together and just clap for Jesus? Amen. I want to invite you just in the next few moments as we play this song right here for you to get around and ask somebody how they're doing today. Shake their hand and hang out. This is a time of fellowship. Amen. So get out of your seats. We're going to crucify the awkward monster tonight. So shake hands. Don't be awkward.
exciting conversations when we get started in the next few moments. so good to see everybody here. Thank you guys for moving that section. That's so awesome. I uh, just want to welcome you to Metro Praise. My name is Joe Wyrostek. I'm the pastor here. and uh, We're just so excited to be here as a team. It's about six of us and my wife and children, they're at home and they're going to start coming out in just a little bit. But uh, my wife's still in Bible college and uh, she's doing good. But we just are so glad to see you all here. We want to come out every Tuesday at 7 o'clock to just share love for God and people with you. And I hope that you're already enjoying that. I see some familiar faces. And whatever we got to do to start off with as a core, it's going to be our core. We are not going anywhere. I'll tell you a little bit about us, and you can also see on the website, is that we started the church six years ago uh, on the northwest side, like Irving Park, Pulaski area. And now we have a new building over there, about 200 folks. And the heart for Wicker Park was let's reach out, let's be creative. And that's why we're here now on Tuesdays. We sent out a bunch of mail-outs, and uh, we're just going to keep going for it, all right? So look at your neighbor and say, he's glad you're here. Okay, so we don't want to lose any. We want to gain the momentum, okay? And uh, I appreciate you all singing and going for God. Uh, that was only about the third most awkward song service I've ever been in, okay? So we're, we're getting away from the awkward stage of song service. But we're getting better, you know? And uh, just singing and loving God. But, you know, I appreciate you guys coming and trying to learn some of our new songs. So that's great. And we just want to let you know that we came here with a vision. Can everybody say vision? Vision. You know, we're not here aimlessly just saying, hey, let's try this out. We have a vision of purpose to why we're here. Can everybody say love God? I think that's a good thing for a church to do. We kind of got away from that, the building fountains and, and getting Rolex watches. But how many think church's first primary focus should be love God, right? Okay. And then everybody say love people. Okay. Then look at your neighbor and say people like you. And then look at your neighbor on your other side and say, not so much. No, I'm just kidding. We love the other neighbor, don't we? We always got to love all of our neighbors. But, uh, yeah, we're going to love God, love people, and then everybody goes, strategy. Oh, y'all y'all weren't doing that like, you got to do that like we're in a James Bond film. Come on, everybody goes, strategy. Thank you. We have a strategy to change the world. Like, what are we going to do now that we're going to love God and love people? Well, we came up with this idea of connecting you to the cross like a plug into a socket. Bam, plugging you in. And then turning you on. Look at your neighbor and say he wants to turn you on. Yes, we want to turn you on for Jesus. That's right, okay? So pumping you into Jesus, turn you on, and then have you learn about Jesus, and then go take Jesus everywhere you go. And a great way to do that is to get involved in a life group. Can somebody say life group? Can you guys say like you're a public speaker and you want to accent the word life? Everybody go life group. Like a weird kind of like, you know, pseudo-Latino person, like, I group. Everybody go, I group. It's just getting you to talk right now, okay? So we're not just awkwardly standing. We're going to learn to become friends. In a life group, they're going to ask you to go through a seven steps of spiritual growth, but this is how we help you grow in your spiritual walk. We don't want you just to come and say, I'm going to that church, but I'm not learning anything. We want you to grow in the life group, and by getting a part of the church and going to the class, you can start to grow. And what the cool thing is about the life group is it meets in a home. It meets at Chris and Vanessa's house. It's on your announcement. You can see the address right there. And uh, what we do there, 
Sundays at 5. They get together to do home Bible study. And then you can be like, yo, man, I love this life group. Can I get in, you know, get in that class? And they'll do it with you one-on-one with, uh, you know, with their own time schedule. So you want to meet at a coffee shop? You want to come early and meet, stay later and meet? Uh, that's really how we do that connect stage. And everybody go mentor. Thank you. Mentor means that we're going to start discipling you, training you how to live like Jesus. And that's this book right here. It's 12 Steps in Spiritual Growth. And we have it right now Sunday mornings at 7.30 a.m. in our other congregation. And you know you love Jesus if you come to church at 7.30 in the morning. Okay, so you know you love Jesus. There's one of the graduates back there. And uh, we're fixing this Sunday to graduate the most we've ever graduated. About 10 of them have completed this book. It takes about a year. And now they're going to do some awesome things for God. So once again, this is our strategy. Connecting you to the cross. Getting you in life groups. Helping you get trained up in some of the basics of the faith. Then mentoring you so that you can grow in your faith and have these things answered. And love your word and God and get closer to him. And then everybody goes, send. Any Street Fighter fans here? <laughs> I'm just looking at some of you just like, come on, Joe, can we stop doing this? No, we're going to start doing it more. Okay, everybody go, hi, kids. Yeah, see, I told you we're going to go more on that. Um, it was like, that church is so crazy. Yes, but it's fun, isn't it? I mean, you're not just sitting there. Uh, we could recite the rosary if you want. Maybe that's what you're used to. No offense, I love you, and that's okay, but just just have fun. Look at your neighbor and say, let's have fun. We can do that at church. Trust me, we're not going to go to hell having fun. So, connect to Jesus, life group, go to the class, then mentoring, get developed as a disciple, get sent out to change the world. You know some cool, pretty cool things we're doing right now? Uh, Saturdays, we go to the west side to adopt the block out there in the African American community, loving the people. We have a youth group on Fridays going out to the high schools and just touching their lives with Jesus. This is an outreach. You know, we had to take trained laborers from one place and bring them out over here. So there's a place for everybody to get a part of it. So please join the life group, get excited, and let it change your life. And this is the series we're doing all this month. And uh, do you all know Jesus the rocker right there? Come on. Jesus is a rock star to me. And I think that's okay. And Jesus is rocking out right there. And I want you guys to watch this cool video. And I want you to bring your friends next week because we still got uh, some more great things to do. Next week we're going to be getting into some different lessons. I want you to watch the video and then bring your friends to this. How many like the thumbs up, Jesus? Is that how you see Jesus? There's Catholic Jesus. The black and white Jesus is kind of the focus there. How many love Jesus? Anybody love Jesus? Okay. Awesome. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm not alone. Uh, we're talking all about who is Jesus. If you don't love Jesus yet, we want you to love him. I promise you'll love him without drinking the Kool-Aid. You will find a reason to love him on your own because he's, he's that awesome, okay? He's pretty cool. And uh, what we talked about uh, last week is God and who is Jesus? Is he God in the flesh or just a good man? So everything last week was about, is Jesus deity or a good man? And remember we talked about the trilemma last week that C.S. Lewis gave us. Was he a lunatic, liar, or Lord? Because he couldn't have been just a good man. Remember in review, a 
good man doesn't go around saying he's the savior of the world, all the people of the world are his sheep, he's going to die for them, bring them to his father's palace in heaven and build a bunch of mansions for them. So either he was intentionally lying, like, dude, I'm lying and I want you to buy into this, or he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord of glory. And I think we discovered last week that uh, he is God in the flesh. I don't know if anybody else was convinced of that, but if you already believe that, can you say amen? And then hopefully that helps you. And if you're getting convinced, let's keep you studying. Today's message is going to be an awesome message. Savior raised from the dead or a married man. And that kind of ties into Jesus just being a good man. Because, you know, like uh, Mahatma Gandhi, good man, but he's dead. Uh, Martin Luther King, good man, but he's dead. So once again, is Jesus just that good man giving us fortune cookie, you know, little sayings that love your neighbor as yourself, but he's still dead? Like, I have a dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr., but he's dead? Or is this man the savior of the world, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, is there right now, and he's waiting to come back? I mean, that's a big doozy right there. Can you all say amen? That's a big doozy right there. And then next week, miracle worker or just a good teacher? So do, are, are we all naturalistic? Do we disbelieve in miracles today in the scientific age? Or do we still believe in miracles? That's going to be awesome. And then uh, the week after that is the only way or a way among many. So is Jesus on the spiritual buffet of life? Do you take a little Jesus with a little Buddha and a little Krishna on the side and everybody else who says it's only Jesus is a judgmental, fundamental hypocrite. And so we're going to talk about is he one way or the uh, way among many? And uh, I got a cool question that I want to get to in just a moment, but I want to tell you guys today that we need your help. We can't do this without you, and I thank you guys coming out every week and supporting us. We got about a good 20 right now, and uh, if we could just keep growing and giving and, and showing up, then we're going to be here for a long time. And basically what our church talks about is a tithe and offering. Can everybody say tithe? tithe. Can everybody say offering? Now, this is so we don't have to do bake sales. This is so that we don't have an elote uh, stand in the front or sell little Jesus dolls out of the back corner there. Uh, this is the way the church was, was basically taught to, to gather in its source of income. Tithe is a 10% of our income. So when I was a young child, my dad, you know, raised me up as a Christian. I got an allowance, and he was like, Joe, here's a dollar, but you got to give a dime to Jesus. Okay, that's how I was raised up. So that was before I was ever a pastor, before my wife and I ever had to, you know, live off what the church gave us. We understood that principle. My, my wife was born a Christian as well. And now that we have uh, started a church, I cannot thank you enough for those that do this out of obedience. Now, there's three reasons why the Bible teaches us to do this. Number one, it breaks the love of money. Everybody say the love of money. See, the love of money is a bad thing. And Jesus said you cannot serve God in money. Out of all the things Jesus could have given as a blank, as God and the booty. You can't serve God and strippers. You can't serve God and porno on the internet. You can't serve God and marijuana. Out of all the crazy things God could have put up there, you know what he put up there? He said you cannot serve God and money. Greenback, dinero. Are you guys tracking with me right here? Yep. Because I think all of us have that tendency. And when we give our 10%, we're breaking the love of money. So when we're like giving payday, we're like, give me each payday, I'm going after you. It's like, hold on, I owe 10% of this to the Lord. And I'm going to be obedient and give it to him so the house of God can be taken care of. What does that do? That kind of like puts a dagger in that love of money, doesn't it? And then the second thing the Bible says is that if we believe in God, this is really for those who believe in God. Does anybody believe in God? Somebody say, I believe. I believe. Okay, good. I believe too. And so that means there's this place called heaven. And it's a lot nicer than it is 
you know, down here. And we're going to be there a lot longer than we are here. So Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not decay that treasure. And so when I'm giving to the Lord at 10%, I'm saying, God, I'm making an investment. Not into Boca Raton, Florida. I'm making an investment into the kingdom of God that I'll be rewarded for. And then the third thing, this is really cool, everybody go, this is really cool. Really cool. You gotta say cool. Everybody go cool. cool. Okay, it's really cool. This is really cool. Is like we get to change the world. We get to change the world. Like when we give, we change the world. And we have right now Metro Grace. These books, you can see them online, translated into four different languages. We're right now in Pakistan. We're in Nepal. We're in Nigeria. And we are in two parts of India with over 200 churches we're supporting. I've been there three times. You're going to see it in the video. And when you guys support us, we get to change the world. And that's the coolest thing ever. Everybody go, ever. Okay, so those are the three reasons I give my time. I want to break the love of money off of my heart. I want to store up treasures in heaven. And I want to do something cool for God down here. And an offering is when we say, God, okay, I got 90% now, and I got to pay some bills out of this, and I got to pay car payments, but do you want me to give extra? Do you want me to support something like the missions? Do you want me to support something like the building so we can continue to stay here on top of all the bills? And that's what makes us really excited. So can we all stand up together? Come on, we're going to get ready to give, but let's pray first, and let's honor God. Lord, we just thank you, God, that in this house there are givers. That's why we can come here today. And Lord, we just ask you to continue to bless the givers and, and support them and give them raises and promotions and, and God enable them to give. And those that want to give, Lord, I pray that they'll start giving by faith even if things on the outside look tough right now. And God, we also pray for our country, Lord, starting with our president to the Congress and Senate, our leadership. We pray what our forefathers used to pray frequently, and that is God bless America. Lord, we trust in you more than the dollar bill, and we need your help in this recession. And Lord, we also lift up our missionaries and the people that support you uh, and love you overseas, God. And they are not only struggling financially, but they're also struggling many times with persecution, God. And we ask you to be with them in Pakistan, in India, in Nepal, in Nigeria. May your name be spread across this globe, God. May all come to know and love you, Lord. And bless our soldiers, God, in this country with peace, God. Restore unto us, God, a peace in this nation and a prosperity, Lord. And we'll be faithful as you bless us to bless you in return. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Can we say what Paul said on the count of three? Let's say one, two, three. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. We're going to pass around the, uh, the offering bucket here, and as we do, we're going to put up this cool video that tells you about what we're doing around the world. Have you been to? Oh, wonderful. 
But were you doing mission work there? No. Okay, wonderful. But did your heart feel it when you were out there? It's a beautiful country, right? You gotta love those people. Very beautiful. I love them. And uh, our name and the language for our southern Indian brothers and sisters is Sutni Patna. Everybody say Sutni Patna, which means uh, city that praise God. Uh, we're going to do a little discussion here, and uh, hopefully you guys will get used to this part of the service, and hopefully it's not going to be as awkward as it was weeks prior to this. But basically what we're trying to do is kind of crack the nut here of Wicker Park. It's a little, little tough nut to crack. I know there's a lot of people with different ideas, maybe even your friends, and that's why we're welcoming them here, not to be like they're interrupting the church service, but that they can ask a question to a pastor. I feel like I am qualified. I have a master's degree. I will go for the PhD in my 40s. I just want to take the rest of my 30s off. I've been school for like ever, and I just want to take them off, hang out with my kids, write some more books. But uh, I want you to bring your friends here, those that may not know the Lord, and this is the time that they can uh, ask questions. Well, here's a question that's going to be very uh, like relevant to what we're talking about today. And that is, can we trust history to teach us anything? So when I begin to give you evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the things I'm going to have to do is look at historical data, not only in the Bible, but in other sources. And a lot of times uh, you get radical uh, redaction critics that begin to say, you can't go back and really know anything for sure. And uh, like one of these people, one of the ones I love to pick on here is Bart Ehrman. He debated Craig Evans, one of the authors of the book I'm going to show you in just a moment, on the reliability of the resurrection through historical data. Now, uh, the problem was in this debate is that Barterman got over his head because Craig Evans uh, focused primarily on history, where Barterman focuses primarily on New Testament documents. And what he did is he helped him, he helped Barterman, if you know who he is, he wrote the book Misquoting Jesus, uh, a lot of other problems suffering, these different things. But, uh, you know, Craig Evans put Barterman in a corner and he basically said, if this is what you're saying about Christian facts, if this, if this is what you're saying about uh, the facts of the Bible, then what about the facts of Caesar? What about the facts of, of uh, you know, Pliny and some of these uh, writers who recorded history? And then Barterman said, just mind blow to most of us. He said, anything in history can never be known for sure. I don't know any of that for sure, and you should trust the Bible for sure. Now, for me, I have a real problem with that because that sounds just like ignorance. That just sounds like, well, you know, because we don't know this fact and this fact, we can't know any of the facts. And I don't think most people agree with that. I don't think most people believe there was a Caesar or Rome. Uh, he crossed the Kublai Khan. There was a uh, you know, different governments that rose up, you know, Alexander the Great bringing the Greek culture to the known world at that time. And I believe that uh, there is a certain amount of, of understanding we can get, maybe not 100%, I'll give them that. But I think when we're going back into history, we can get, you know, pretty close to understanding what happened. And so that's what I believe. I'm going to put on this cool song right now. Uh, and I want you guys to look at your neighbor, and I want you to begin to ask them what they believe, and then we'll discuss it today with my man Josh, and he'll interview you guys, and uh, you guys can talk about it. But right now, just look at your neighbor and ask your neighbor, what do you believe? Can we know history, or is it all just a mystery? Can I know history, or is it a mystery?
Okay, any questions? What do y'all think about history? Anybody want to comment? What do y'all think about history? What do you think about the knowability of things of the past? Gosh, my handsome friend right here, sporting the fall look with a great scarf. I'm just all about being the man romantic guy right now. I don't know. I did the same thing to Adam. Yeah, we're left. Uh, Jerry in the back wants to say something, and then did you want to say something? Yeah, okay, Jerry, then our friend over here. I just wanted to say that uh, a lot of people think that the stories about Alexander the Great are true, and they, most of the facts that were written about him were written 300 years after his death, whereas the Bible was written within, what, 20 years of Jesus' death, like, and maybe even prior to that where there are still people around to correct errors. That's good. So you're going to hit on some of the stuff that we believe as Christians, that our documents are closer to the life of Jesus than any other historical figure. And I'll give you guys some facts on that in just a moment. But uh, that's a good point. If anybody wants to feed off of that, go ahead. You go ahead. The microphone just helps us hear you. Go ahead. trying to convince you like this is like a historical thing uh, and, and a lot of the writings of the Bible get pushed into mythology. Uh, mythology in its heart is always more philosophical. There's hardly anybody even like the Hindu, if you go to uh, you know, the Don and, and uh, meet some of the, the people out there, most of them will not be hardcore and say this actually happened on this planet at this time. It's just kind of a, a storytelling. Uh, like a movie, like Transformers, etc. But the Bible is actually always trying to tell you whether it's true or not. Not enough, not, it doesn't make it uh, historically accurate. Like the Book of Mormon does this, and I disagree with it. But the difference between the Bible and mythology is it's not trying to ground itself in philosophy. It's trying to ground itself like in the actual events of that day. And uh, I'm going to start the music over one more time. I'm looking at maybe somebody might have a question. So does anybody else want to say anything? Or am I just doing this for nothing right now? Anybody want to feedback on that? Like, I'm cool with this. we got a lot of time to hang out. i got like a whole hour just to preach, guys. So I'm not Anybody else? Okay, I'm good with that, man. Thank you guys for corresponding. Oh, we got a question back up over here or a comment. Like I said, this is like an Oprah Winfrey show for Jesus, so don't be shy. Okay, so I think that sometimes history, it can be, we can trust it. 
But sometimes when it's like from a particular perspective, it's like it's like bias, you know, like like I remember like when I was in elementary school, like our textbooks would say the same and maybe someone else would say something different from a different perspective. But I think that when um, different cultures or different um, people of different backgrounds agree on the same thing, like all that happened, and then another culture like all that happened as well. Um, I think that history can definitely be like more trusted. It's not just from one perspective, like you know, trying to prove their point. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say when it comes especially to religious history, right, is the ones who want get to tell a story. So I guess if Islam would have conquered the known world during that time of the 8th and 9th century, we'd be telling quite a different story about that time, you know, and the Renaissance, etc. If uh, we wouldn't have been able to get to the age of enlightenment, rebelling against kings and queens, uh, we wouldn't be able to tell the story of freedom and all the things we value. But uh, yeah, there's a collaboration is where she's going for. I think there's a truth in that. And there's actually what's called incriminating collaboration, which is if the person collaborating with you actually is incriminating something towards themselves, it's more reliable. So let's take, for example, like there's a Cubs and a Sox game going on, you know, like the classic fight, you know, and the Cubs and Sox fans are there. And there's a fight that breaks out between a Cubs fan and a Sox fan. And, uh, and, and they ask a Cubs fan what happened, and the Cubs fan says, I hate to admit it, but it was the Cubby. It was the Cub guy that threw the first punch. Well, that's uh, incriminating, uh, collaborating, you know, uh, collaboration. He's incriminating his own people there. And that's uh, actually what we're going to get to in the Bible. So a lot of what people think is like brainwashed people recording is actually people recording against their own well-being in many ways. Awesome. Okay, man, let's open up our Bibles if you have them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. And thank you, Josh. You did a great job. We're going to be talking today about Jesus and whether he is Savior raised from the dead or a buried man. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 is going to be our starting content. And just to remind you, all the messages are, again, metropraise.org. Even the video you can download for free, as well as the books are for free there. And now let's look at the passage Paul is talking here. We're going to get to him in just a moment. And uh, let me just pause here because I know we talked about this last week. When people say Christians uh, prove the Bible is true by reading the Bible, and that's a circular argument. Let's just be honest. We all have presuppositions, and they have to be grounded upon either life experience or fact and all of these things. And last week, we kind of dealt with that a little bit more. So I don't want you to think that we're afraid to look outside of the Bible for our answers, but we believe that the Bible has the best answers. So let's go to it today. Here it is, Paul speaking, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Now what I want you to see right here is when Paul starts off with this sentence right here. For what I received, I passed on to you. This is very unique because the book of 1 Corinthians is being written to the people who live in the city uh, known as Corinth. Corinth is a coastal city. It's a city at that time that was dominated by the uh, Roman government and paganism and uh, had a civil order of the Roman rule at that time. And so most people there were, were, were pagans, uh, worshiping many different gods, etc. But at this time, Paul is writing to them around 16 AD. And Jesus, we know, ascended into heaven around 30 AD. And at 60 AD, only 30 years has passed. Paul himself, we're going to talk about his conversion and how he came from a Jew to a Christian. But right here, he's speaking to these people who come from a pagan origin. He's saying, guys, what I'm giving to you is 
what I've already received. And what scholars alike, both Christian and non-Christian, you know, liberal, fundamental, they both agree that this points to a previous document or source that Paul himself was educated by. Now, what does that mean? This is not something that Paul made up and placed upon Christians. A lot of times people say that the teachings of Jesus evolved over time and that Paul was the main teacher who kind of took Christianity and made it something different, which would be a molding of Judaism and paganism together. And this idea comes from, you know, Judaism is monotheism. Judaism is very strict in the commandments of God. You know, there's very holy rules to be kept. But the pagans, they weren't as strict and they worshipped multiple gods and they had more freedom to do different things. And so if you look at how Judaism transformed into Christianity, now we go from worshiping the Father in Judaism to now in Christianity worshiping the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And so this trinity is kind of looked at as a collaboration with paganism. And then like, you know, Paul begins to say, guys, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. You don't have to eat, holy, uh, eat the holy diet, which is at that time, Jews didn't eat pork, Jews didn't eat craw uh, crawfish and, and fish along the ground and certain types of birds and, uh, you know, the, the, the crayfish that are on the ground. There's a, a crustacean that's what I'm looking for. And, and they were forbidden. But Paul says, no, you can eat whatever you want. And so people have come back and they've looked at the, the history of the Bible and they go, you know what? Christianity was, uh, you know, was taken into Paul's hands and Paul corrupts the teachings. And now a Jew today would not even want to recognize Christianity because it's so different from the Judaism they came from. They're not following the Sabbath worshiping on Saturday. They're not having a priesthood. They're not following the kosher diet. Is everybody tracking with me? The problem with that is, is that Paul himself is admitting in this letter the teachings that I'm about ready to give you that transform everything, which give us the understanding of the triune nature of God, which give us the understanding of the freedom from the Jewish law into a Christian freedom and a liberty. Paul is saying, what, I re what I'm giving to you, I receive. And the evidence that the scholars have is that this is within five to ten years that they're already teaching what Paul himself learned and more than two years later. So this is 60 AD, and the tradition that he is quoting is probably right around 35 to 40 AD. So now, having that in mind, let's keep reading. For what I received as uh, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The uniqueness of this passage cannot be even stated in today's talk. Paul is running down a creed that predates his belief he is saying that this creed, this system of belief right here of Jesus dying, raised on the third day, appearing to those here, appearing to James, is something that he feels is the first importance of all things to know. Paul later on says in different parts of his writings, he says, if you don't understand and believe this, all of the wisdom, philosophy, and all of the world's wealth and wisdom counts for nothing. Paul then went on and began to write to these people in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He said later on, he said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What is Paul saying right here? Paul is saying, guys, 
If you just want to take Jesus' teachings and just leave him as a teacher that lived like Gandhi and the others, you're not even doing what Christ said, and we should feel sorry and pity for you. He says that if Christ has not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins, you have no hope other than what you have in this life, and you are to be pitied. So let us now draw the line in the sand. We love everybody, but let's draw the line in the sand. There are going to be those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ physically from the dead, and there's going to be those who do not. Paul is drawing the line for us very clear. If you do not believe Jesus raised from the dead, you're in that category. Your sins are not forgiven. If you are in that category, those who have died before you are without hope. And if you are there, you are to be pitied among all men. And those who do believe in Jesus doesn't make us better than anybody else. Just like the person who believes 2 plus 2 is 5 is not a bad person. They just need help in mathematics. And the person who knows 2 plus 2 is 4 is not just the greatest guy on the planet. They just understand mathematics. We who believe this, the Bible is giving us a hope. If we believe Christ is raised from the dead, our faith is not futile, but it's fruitful. It will bear good fruit. We are not in our sins because the sins have been washed away. Those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, we believe we will see again. And in this life, we can have hope in Christ beyond just a natural hope. And we are not to be pitied by men, but we are to be looked among men as an example, a light shining in darkness. Can somebody say amen? So today's premise is, did Jesus raise from the dead or not? Now, I gave you some books last week. I want to give them to you again on four different levels if you want to continue in your study about who is Jesus. The first book I want to give you is at the beginner level, More Than a uh, Carpenter. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Beginner level, everybody here would be able to read it and understand it. It's a great book. Uh, Lee Strobel is an intermediate book, The Case for Christ. And the awesome story about Lee Strobel that I shared a couple weeks ago is that Lee Strobel was an atheist lawyer who worked at the Chicago Tribune, and his wife became converted, started going to church, and he said, you know, Pastor, I'm going to just spend the weekend studying, and I'll be back next weekend, convince your Christianity wrong, and take my wife out of this church. He was a staunch atheist. After two years of study, he didn't do it in a weekend, took two years of study and driving his wife crazy, he became a believer in Jesus Christ, not just because he stepped out on blind faith, but because of the evidence. And he wrote the book, The Case for Christ, and now today his website is the most uh, highly visited website for those who have questions about Christianity, and he's still alive today. He's a great man, uh, Lee Strobel. Uh, if you want to go up the level a little bit a little bit higher, this is the man I was telling you about before, Craig Evans. He's advanced. He's a historian. He has his PhD. He's very educated in what he's talking about. This answers Bart Ehrman. There was a public debate with him and Bart Ehrman, and I don't think he was even close, but of course I'm biased. But I think those who are Christians here would do well to understand Jesus, the man of history. And then, of course, because there's always at least one nerd in the bunch, I have to give you the expert level, which even makes professors like me yawn and go to sleep, and we only go back to this just to get some documents and some references, but it is on the expert level. Richard Bachman today is one of the greatest historians of New Testament times. As a matter of fact, in Craig Evans' debate with Bart Ehrman, he is quoting the newest research that we have for our scriptures and our Bibles, and it remains uncontested. Not saying that it proves that it's right, but in the debate, it's uncontested. This information is in this book, and it's been recently written, is uncontested by Bart Ehrman's scholarship is sound. 
Now, to put it back on the level for all of us to enjoy today's message, I want to give you five facts on the resurrection, and I apologize for the misspelling, okay? Here are the five facts that I want to give you today. Fact one, the broken Roman seal. Fact two, the empty tomb. Fact three, the large stone that was moved. Fact four, Roman, Roman guards go AWOL. And fact five, Jesus' appearances confirmed. Can somebody say, teach us? Teach us. I might say, have some fun. I want you to look at the first fact here. When we're talking about the resurrect resurrection of Jesus, the first thing that we have to believe or understand is that history has a certain way, or I'll say Roman history, had a certain way of, of recording their facts and their understandings of the world. When people ask us, why didn't the Romans record the resurrection of Jesus? Well, there's a problem with that. Why didn't the Romans record some of their losses? Why, why were a lot of things written in Roman history that weren't true? Because when we go to history, it does matter who writes it. And so I don't think we should take all history as fact, but I do think we should understand the sources. When we look at the Bible, we hear that Jesus was crucified and then placed in a tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man's tomb, and that over this tomb is placed a large stone, and there on that stone is placed a Roman seal with Roman guards that are put in charge of that burial. Why were the Roman guards placed in front of them? Because the Bible even records and tells us that there have been stories about his resurrection. And so to avoid somebody coming in and stealing the body and then saying, look, you can't find the body, he must have been raised from the dead, they were going to put an end to that ability for that rumor to get started. And so now we have to ask a question to anybody that holds to the idea that says Jesus' body was stolen. If Jesus' body is stolen, then we have a pro problem with the Roman way of doing things because the consequences of breaking the seal were extremely severe. The FBI, CIA of the Roman Empire would be called into action to find the men or women who were responsible. And if they were apprehended according to their law, it meant execution, crucifixion upside down. People feared the breaking of the seal. Now according to the Bible, how are the disciples feeling at the time of Jesus' death? Are they proud like 300, ripping off their shirts, going, No, never, we'll fight to death. That's right, they are running away and they're hiding. As a matter of fact, this is what we now call incriminating collaboration to the facts, because now the Bible is saying that Peter is afraid. The disciples actually left him at the crucifixion. The only one at the crucifixion is the youngest of the bunch. His name is John. And he's at the crucifixion as a little boy. And since he is the only one there, as which proper in Jewish culture, if a man is going to die and he has uh, no kin or anyone at that time to give the authority to his family, he looks to John, the youngest, and he says, Behold your mother. And he says to Mary, Behold your son. He gave charge of his family to the youngest John, youngest the apostle John. You know why? Because all the other men, Matthew the tax collector, Thomas, uh, there was a revolutionary in the army, Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas, uh, the revolutionary, as he was known, was also there. They all ran away. But yet now we have a sealed rock, a ton and a half to two ton rock, sitting in front, guarded, uh, sitting in front of the tomb, guarded by Roman guards with this seal. 
Jesus' disciples displayed signs of cowardice when they hid themselves. Peter, of one of these disciples, went out and denied Christ three times. As a matter of fact, when you read the Bible story, and Christ finally raises from the dead, and Peter has just seen him, what do they all ask for now? They ask for signs of proof. They still don't believe. Once again, if the Bible was giving us false history, if the Bible was telling us a lie, why would they make the heroes of the story, the ones who were the most afraid, who ran away, and then the leader, Peter, he's the one that's still doubting. You see, because we begin to see that the first fact here is, if Jesus did not have a supernatural resurrection, nobody would have gone and touched that tomb. Nobody would have broken that seal. And no one on the Roman side of that government would have taken a bribe to accept uh, something so that the Christians could move the body. Let's keep going. Number two, we look at the empty tomb. And you might say, well, Pastor, that's so easy. I can go to the graveyard and I can bury, uh, you know, take out a person that's been buried. But once again, this is not just going to a graveyard. This is going to a place with a stone that weighs a half a ton to two tons in front of it with Roman soldiers, probably two to four, and with a Roman seal. And at the same time, if you were to get around this whole situation, you would have to be able to move the rock and take the body with you in enough time to go back and convince people that it's empty. Let me give you an example of this. Look at, look at this right here. The empty tomb was too notorious to be denied. Paul Atheus states, here's a scholar, that the resurrection could not have been maintained in Jerusalem for a single day or a single hour if the emptiness of the tomb had not been established as a fact for all concerned. Meaning, if Jesus is not supernaturally moving around, supernaturally knocking out the angels, and supernaturally walking out, how can they all get back there the next day, as the Bible reports, and say, now this tomb is empty? It doesn't say a few weeks later. It says the next day, you know, three days, but, you know, that day of the resurrection. That day they go to check to prepare his body even more. It is now empty. Look at the next scholar, Paul Maynard. He observes, if all the evidence is weighed carefully, and fairly. It is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea, in which Jesus was buried, was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, or archaeology that would disprove this statement. So now, we may say, well, the Roman government didn't record a dead body being stolen. But did the Roman government or any false, or excuse me, any other religion, any other group of people, any other Jewish group of people make evidence to prove otherwise? And yet our Bible says that the evidence is the resurrected Jesus, the tomb is empty, and this is what men begin to claim and see. But where are the writings of everybody else saying, no, his body was actually here. His body was here. He was moved by so-and-so. You know why that couldn't be happened? You know why Da Vinci Code and these lies couldn't have happened? It's because the moment that would have happened, called in Roman soldiers. Calling the, the disciples, calling these people, corroborating evidence would have been determined at that moment that that is not what happened. 
So what do we stop right here? What did the world say at this time? The people who didn't know about it. The Bible records the only other explanation. And that is that the disciples stole the body and not to talk about the matter anymore. Hoping that the sect would then die out. Because the Roman soldiers are in trouble. They take the, 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 uh, the freedom or the, the pass from their leader. The leader says, you don't talk about it, we won't talk about it anymore. The Jewish faith says, we won't talk about it. And if anybody asks, we'll just say his body was stolen. And yet... There was nobody saying that story in writing or in history. But what was the story that everybody was saying? Jesus is raised from the dead. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But let's just look at this large stone right here that's moved. If the disciples had wanted to come in, tiptoed around the sleeping guards, and then roll the stone over and steal Jesus' body, how could they have done that without the guards' awareness? So now somebody say, well, maybe... That they stole the body, but the guards uh, were not knocked out. It wasn't angelic. It was natural. Well, on that Sunday morning, the first thing that impressed the people who approached the tomb was the unusual position of a one-and-a-half to two-ton stone that had been lodged in front of the doorway. All the Gospels mentioned. So here's the problem. The stone is moved, and no one says we have moved it. The disciples never claimed to say we have moved it. The Roman soldiers never claimed to say we have moved it. As a matter of fact, there's not one shred of evidence where anybody ever says we moved the rock. Now let me explain to you why this is important. When Christianity began to be developed in the Roman Empire, the problem wasn't that they were Christians and believed in Jesus. That was okay. There were so, uh, soteric philosophers. There were uh, you know, all types of uh, different philosophies of that day, Platonians, etc. They didn't have a problem with another philosophy. Here was the problem. They claimed that their Jesus was the only God and no one else was to be worshipped. And where did they base that claim on? Where did Peter base that claim on? Where did John base that claim on? These men didn't base that claim on, on that they saw hallucinations, dreams, or visions when they were at sleep. But they based this teaching on the very fact they saw Jesus. And so what did they begin to do to them? Did they just say, run along, Christians, you're okay? Study church history. They begin to kill them. They begin to crucify them upside down. They begin to punish them. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to Nero, which is about 30 years after uh, Jesus, they began to set them on fire, lining the roads with them, putting them in gladiator stadiums and having them put to death. These witnesses, as Paul is talking about, they are alive at this time, but they're being captured and killed, not based upon a hope that one day they'll see him, but based upon the honest fact that they believe, I did see him, and I saw him here. And I know I didn't move the stone. Let's keep going to fact number four. The next fact that we see is that the Roman guard goes AWOL. This is that part that I'm talking about. How do we explain this? How do we explain that the Roman guard goes AWOL? Were they bribed by the disciples? Never. They would have been put to death. Did they not do their job? No. These were the most trained military forces of that time. This is the only explanation. The guards fled. They left their place of responsibility. How can their attrition be explained when Roman military disciplined and it was so exceptional, the punishment? Certainly in the entire unit would not have fallen asleep. And they, with, with that run over their head, look at Dr. George Curry. He says right here that they produced flawless attention to duty, especially in the night watches. Now you're beginning to understand why these struggle converted to Christianity, because these facts that I'm giving you, though I don't have all of the references, are the highlights of this man's study and another man just like Josh McDonald. The, the point that we're making here is that the Roman government was involved in this. 
The Roman government wouldn't have taken lightly somebody stealing a body from them, and they certainly wouldn't have taken a bribe. And those who would have taken the bribe, I mean, given the bribe as the disciples and have manipulated the situation, wouldn't have been brought public attention to it the very next day. If I bribed somebody in the city, would I then go to the newspaper and say, everybody check this out and bring attention to that event? No, the only thing that would explain that is that Jesus was really showing up. And then here it is, what I believe is to me the best evidence, the fact five, which is Jesus' appearance is confirmed. Let's go through these individually and hope that this will encourage your faith and help some of you think through these things a little deeper. The Bible itself that records the, the, the finding of the tomb, who are the first ones to find the tomb empty? Is it Peter, the disciple who believed all along and he was just waiting for it to happen? It was the women, the women who even in the Jewish and in the Roman court of law could not even stand as a witness to a crime. And yet the Bible validates their experiences by saying they're the first ones. Come on, uh, can I get an amen from the women tonight? Amen. The Bible treats them as equals. And yet in that culture, that would have been the wrong way to get your story off the ground. Like, hey guys, let me tell you about my Savior. He raised from the dead. You know how I raised from the dead? Because a bunch of women found him. Everybody would have laughed him out of town. They would have said, you're putting your hope in women. You're putting your trust in what a woman has to say. And yet the Bible gives this as the first evidence. It's the women who go to the tomb. And the Bible's not trying to hide that fact. As a matter of fact, it gives them honor because it seemed like they had the most faith. And then the next thing that we see is the conversion of doubters. Did you know that in the Bible, the brother of James, or it could be the cousin, depending on how that word is translated, brother or cousin. Do you know that James hated Jesus, didn't want anything to do with Jesus? When Jesus was talking to them, um, uh, talk, talking to his disciples, the Bible says Mary and his brothers came and they said, hey, your, your mother and brothers are outside. And he said, I'm not going out there. Uh, tell them my mother and brothers are those who do the will of God. Because of that offense, later on in the story of the life of Jesus, they're all going to be going to the, uh, the, the Feast of Booths where they, uh, the Israelite people celebrated the time of the wilderness when they camped in tents and they would set up little tents in the city and they would pour out water from the temple. It was symbolic of God's blessing coming to the people. His brothers said, hey, if you're really, you know, Mr. Smarty Pants, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go to Jerusalem at feast day and go show yourself to everybody? Why don't you go to the Taste of Chicago, get on the bandstand, and just tell everybody who you are? They mock him. And then Jesus says to them, see, you don't understand my purpose. You don't understand what God has for me. But hold on. In that sentence that Paul gives us, he says he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to the 500 witnesses. And then what name does he mention there? And he appeared to James. The very one alive at that time who can stand up in front of everybody and go, Hey, I know this is phony. That's my brother. And you know brothers are going to call each other out. Come on. I know that's my brother. He ain't no God. I'll tell you that right now. I shared a room with him. He did not do that. I'll tell her. No, as a matter of fact, you look at the book of James in your Bible, that is the half-brother of Jesus. And he writes some of the greatest stories about faith in action in that book because he has been convinced that his brother, the one that he mocked, the one that rebuked him, is now the Lord and Savior, the God of glory. The next thing that you see is more than 500 witnesses. Do you know that Christianity spread faster than what it takes time for a legend to spread? 
you can find this out and I can show you in those resources. For a legend to start right now in modern times, it can happen pretty fast because of Twitter, because of Facebook. But in a time without any way of getting messages across a mass amount of people, it had to start by word of mouth. And it would take anywhere between 5, 10, 15 years for a community of people to all share the same superstition. But here, within 40 days, 500 people are claiming that they have saw him, and now they are converting 3,000 in one day and 5,000 in another day. By, by the time Christianity made its 30th birthday, it had been known in all the Roman provinces of the world because it wasn't one person spreading a rumor. It was 500 living witnesses teaching the teachings of Christ. The next thing that you see is the spread of Christianity by Peter in Jerusalem. All sources agree. Where did Christianity start? In Jerusalem. Where did the founder die? In Jerusalem. Okay, does anybody want to start a restaurant in Kabul, Afghanistan right now? Does anybody want to take a trip to, you know, Lahore, Pakistan? You want to start your, new, your business out there? Where do they start Christianity? At the very spot that their Lord and Savior was crucified. How would you place so much tenacious faith inside of a person unless they saw him personally? And do we even see that he was a coward at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, ran away, denied him three times? And the Bible uses such language that the third time he was asked by a little girl if he knew Jesus. He said, I don't know the blanket man. He cursed in his denial of Jesus. And then last, we see the conversion of Paul, the very one giving us the teachings that we have in our Bible, the majority of them coming from Paul. Did you know that Paul himself in his writings tells us that he was sent out by the Jewish leaders to throw more Christians in jail and to kill them? And then what does Paul say? But I was on the road to Damascus. He says, I was riding on my horse with two other men, and then a light shone in front of me, knocked me off of my horse. I then looked up at the light and became blinded, and I said, What do you want from me, Lord? And he said, I have chosen you to be my witness to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And he said, I will be your servant. Jesus showed up to the Apostle Paul, the one who was killing the Christian, blinds him for three days and converts him. You think this is easy for the Christians to accept? For three years, no Christians even accept Paul into the community of believers. It took, after three years, a man by the name of Barnabas to finally go check him out and go, guys, no, really, he's been in the desert of Arabia. He's really the man he says he is. He's not trying to infiltrate our, 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 our ranks here and betray us, he's really seen God. Would you be a man sent on a journey, like, for example, the man sent to go kill Osama bin Laden? And then after Osama bin Laden's been killed and you're serving in the military, would you then say, I saw Osama bin Laden alive and I want to now represent his teachings to the U.S. military? Would somebody be that foolish? That is what Paul is doing. And now you would understand they would kick him out and we want nothing. They would punish him. And so for three years, Paul is in exile even by Christian records. And yet when they accept him, he begins to tell them the story. And they begin to tell him the rest of the story. And that's where we come back to what we started today. These evidences are the best evidences that state the fact of what happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus, my friends, walked 
this earth. Some people say, I want to see a miracle. My friends, a miracle was already here for you. And you can trust the Bible. It's been reviewed. It's been critiqued. It's the one book that we can go against in a free world and burn it. We try to touch the, you know, some of that we, but somebody try to touch the Quran. The whole world gets in an uproar. There are universities like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale that all used to be Bible colleges that now totally ridicule the Bible, and yet Christians still believe. Why would it still have the power of conversion to those who honestly look at the facts? Because it is the truth. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He was betrayed by one of his followers. He was then brought to a Jewish court, and they called him a blasphemer because he made himself equal with God. That was the only way that they could kill somebody by their law, is if he was held with treason, being a blasphemer. Then they had to get permission from the Romans to kill somebody because Jews were not allowed to do that as they were being oppressed. And then the Roman government had to make some type of a last-minute decision to even allow an innocent man to die. So they said, let's have a vote. Whoever you shout the loudest for will go free and we'll crucify the other one. And that day, a slave, a, 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 a thief by the name of Barabbas went free. And yet they took Jesus and they did something at that time they never really did. They flogged him and crucified him. In most Roman times, you were either flogged and let go or you were too crucified, not flogged and crucified. Why? Because as they were flogging him, they were hoping that the Jewish people would be satisfied. Now that he has been whipped 40 times by a cat of nine tails, which is a whip that has nine tentacles on it with broken glass and pottery, ripping out your flesh every time. They hoped that the Jewish people would see that and say, that is enough. So after they flog him, they still say, crucify him. And then they lead him away. None of his disciples revolt. Nobody is fighting back. Nobody is, is holding back the procession. There he's going, like the Bible says, a lamb led to slaughter. And there, right before the day of Passover, and Jewish days start when the sun goes down. Not at 12 midnight. They start when the sun goes down. And there he is being crucified. And they recognize we have to get him off this cross before the sun goes down. Otherwise, the Jewish people are going to be unclean for their Sabbath day because they can't go to a funeral on their Sabbath day. So they go to the two thieves that are crucified next to him and they begin to break their legs so that while they're hanging, they will then begin to choke and not be able to breathe. They do that to, to the two on his side, but then they go to Jesus and Jesus now has already died. Why? Because he's been beaten and he's been crucified. And yet this keeps the prophecy that was said about him that he would be crucified yet none of his bones would be broken. Then they take him down. Nobody has any money to bury him. Nobody will even hardly acknowledge him. But one man comes along the side and pays a bribe to get to be able to bury him. Rich man Joseph of Arimathea, which the only reason why we know his name is because he was a convert to Christianity and after the fact was proud to be noted as the man who would do it. But this, even then, at that time, would have been treason. He buries him in his own tomb. And then the Roman soldiers say, because we've heard these stories, we're going to place the Roman guards here. We're going to put a stone with a seal here. And we're going to make sure they don't take his body. But my friends, what happened that day? Would you be able to, uh, Josh, turn down the lights? What happened that day, my friends, was the greatest thing of human history. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He wasn't just a good man. He was the Lord and Savior of the world. And I want you to watch this video. We'll close out after this and pray.
And you might say, Pastor, well, you know what? I don't do drugs. I'm not a druggie. You were down and out. But my wife, and I love to tell her story, as the same with mine, is the total opposite. Grew up in church in an all-green family, family from Greece. Never had sex before marriage. Never tasted alcohol. Never tasted a cigarette. Obeyed her parents. Followed the rules. Was a good girl. But she was at a youth meeting one night, and a pastor like me began to talk about an emptiness right down here on the inside that nothing could fulfill. Not her getting good grades in school, not her having a boyfriend, not her being popular. And the pastor said, you need Jesus. Because the cross is what fulfills the emptiness of life. And my wife, at the age of 18, in the same month, November, she came up, we didn't even know each other, she came up and she said, God, if you're real, would you fill the emptiness in my life? That family, that education, that boyfriends, that high school popularity will not fill. And for her, it's been almost 13 years. We believe in Jesus more than the facts because he's with us today. You see, my friends, I'm one of those witnesses. I didn't touch him, but I'm a witness that he's alive. And I know that the men who did touch him wrote these words. And I want to ask you today that as we sing this song about coming to the cross, please don't go. We'll dismiss in just five minutes after this song. But if that's you today, and you're saying, I need Jesus, would you start by singing this song, opening your heart? And making a public confession, let us pray. Father, we ask as we close out with singing a song about you and the cross, that you would bless us today, and that those of us who are away from you would come close to you, and that we wouldn't be afraid to call on your name, and that we would humble ourselves and pray today, and ask you into our lives. In Jesus' name, would you sing this song before we close out today? Prayer. To the cross I go.
we're going to pray a prayer of dismissal. You can fellowship and enjoy the refreshments and ask me any question. But these workers up here and some more are going to come. They're going to be up here if you want prayer. And you may want prayer to accept Jesus. And what that means is you're going to confess your sins to the Lord. Not to a priest, but to Jesus between you and him. But we'll help you do that. Or if you have any issues in your life today and you're saying, I need a miracle, maybe sickness, or just a downturn in your life, we are here to pray with you because we believe Jesus not only saves us from sin, but he saves us from our troubles. He saves us from our troubles. I was reading a post from my dad on Facebook. He retired as a financial planner, uh, had accolades in American Express, working for their departments of finances. And he said, I've read so many books on finances. I've gone through so many downturns of the economy, and I've heard economists talk over and over. He said, but my trust has always been in the one who knows where every cow is on every hill, knows where every business is, and every worker, and every employee, and every customer. He said, my hope is still in Jesus. And so, my friends, you may be facing that kind of trouble, or just something in your family, or with your children. Whatever it is, we want to tell you, Jesus saves not only from sin, but from all trouble. Let's pray. If you want to stick around, you can, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we thank you that you brought us here tonight. Hopefully, Lord, we've learned more about you. You've spoken to our heart. We're reminded of the cross. Bless our families this week, God. Bless our communities and bring us back together, Lord, to celebrate you and to love you. And those that need prayer, let them come. Open their heart because you love them. You love them enough to die for them so they can experience your life today. It's in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen and amen. Can you bless the Lord one more time? Amen. We're going to keep singing. If you want prayer, come. If not, greet each other. Have some refreshments, some brochures in the back, and some information, and we'll hang out. God bless you.